0: This week on Chatter, Pete Strzok talks about coups, counterintelligence, and chasing Russian spies. So, Pete, I want to start uh, with uh, the question of how many coups you have. Uh, organized in your life. You, you you started at 10 in Iran, I think, right? And it, it kind of worked from there?
1: Uh, it, it, it did. And organization is, uh, we have to be really generous with that uh, definition if you want to call any of them organized. But uh, there was one in Iran uh, in the 78 beginning of 79. From there to West Africa, there were two successful coups and at least two, maybe more unsuccessful coups. So we're at five. Uh, In Haiti, uh, there was one. Uh, And then depending on whether or not you want to count 2016 to 2020, that makes either six or seven.
0: All right, and uh, great, so let's start by talking about each of those coups that you personally organized. As an eight-year-old in Iran, uh, what were you doing living in Iran starting coups as an eight-year-old?
1: Well, so we were there. Um, it was actually my second time living there. The first time my father was still in the army uh, in 1973 and 1974. Interestingly enough, we had to leave the country in 1974 because, a, oddly enough, Iranian, a group of Iranian communists backed by the PRC, uh, was apparently surveilling our house and targeting us, not because of me for any uh, conceivable reason, but my father being in the military. And so the Iranian authorities thought it's thought it safest if we, my mother and I were to leave. So we left. And then with assurances in 1978 that everything was fine and safe and under control in Iran, we went back. My father had left the military. He was working for Bell Helicopter. And... <clears throat> We are there, uh, arrived in the summer, late summer of nineteen seventy-eight, started the school year which lasted until about Thanksgiving and because of the uh violence, uh started having a day off here and there because of the security situation, which turned into a week off here and there and come December, uh school had essentially been canceled and then my mother and I left in January and then, you know, The Shah fled January-February timeframe, I think, and Khomeini came back in the summer, late summertime, and the hostages were taken uh, later that fall.
0: So your childhood, how much of it did you spend abroad?
1: Before uh, I was a teenager, more than half of it. Um, I think we moved by the time I was 18, I'd moved eight times or so. So there's quite a bit of moving. And that includes, you know, if you add in some moves within the U.S., add another couple in there. So I don't think we, until hitting West Africa in 1980, you know, hadn't lived in any place for longer than 18 months. But that was just, you know, at least for an Army brat, I think that experience isn't particularly unusual. But um, there are quite a bit of moving. And then I landed in the United States for high school, went to high school up in Minnesota. And then eventually my parents came they were in Haiti uh, for my freshman, sophomore year, and then moved up to Minnesota for the last two years.
0: All right. So you leave Iran just in time to not be taken hostage, and you go to West Africa. Um, your dad's no longer in the military. Where in West Africa uh, were you, and and why, and what happened there?
1: Um, so he was—we <clears throat> spent a brief, probably not quite a year in— uh, Northern Virginia, where he was, you know, he he was not working for Bell Helicopter anymore. In Iran, he went to work in international development, uh, and the first posting was in it was then Upper Volta. It's now Burkina Faso, but uh, he was the country director for Catholic Relief Services, which is the country Catholic,
0: which, by the way, has the best named capital in the world,
1: Ouagadougou. And yeah, Ouaga, Ouaga, for short. Everybody, including the the locals, call it Ouaga because Ouagadougou is very uh, multi-syllabled and it's easier to go yeah it takes, takes a long time to say. <clears throat> and also the second largest city also very coolly named Bobo de Lasso is a lovely city but interesting now because I mean it was one just extraordinarily poor even within Africa but you know these nascent democracies which you know had democracy challenges throughout the you know Coups and not just uh, Burkina was that way, but Mali and Niger went through periods of instability. But now you look at what Wagner Group is doing. I mean, the, the Russian toehold in the security environment in sub-Saharan Africa is extraordinary. And it just is encouraging, you know, sort of the the Russian rent taking of the national resources in exchange for kickbacks to corrupt regimes and <clears throat> the provision of, you know, notional security forces taking the place of what France had done for a long time it really i think a lot of americans in general don't pay a lot of attention to sub-saharan africa and to the extent they do it's only because the you know the how active isis is or isn't uh, in northern africa and the sahel but russia has really despite prigozhin's death uh, there hasn't been an apparent lack of emphasis or interest by russia uh, across the board in africa and i think most Americans would be surprised and uh, concerned about the level of Russian involvement in you know, a lot of places which are really just rolling back democratic efforts, uh, and not just in Africa, but especially in Africa.
0: So you were in uh, Ouagadougou how long before uh, uh, the government was overthrown?
1: uh not long i mean there were there were at least two coups while we were there and then again the the scarier ones are well, they're all a little bit scary but also the unsuccessful ones where people inevitably get uh you know wrapped up and imprisoned or executed uh, there was a typical pattern but I, I gosh i would say within the first certainly within the first year maybe even faster than that and it's you know it, it's a little bit of a joke because it's not <laughs> In some countries, it's not prevalent at all, but it was a frequent enough occurrence both within uh, Upper Volta, but also, you know, in the region that it wasn't, you know, joke's the wrong word, but there were, you know, sort of stereotypical process that would follow that inevitably, you know, you'd you'd wake up and notice there wasn't any traffic on the street. Notice there was a military out. You turn on the radio, you turn on the television. It's just, you know, martial music being played and the picture patriotic picture of a flag or something. And then, you know, turn the shortwave and listen to BBC and hear that, Oh, there was, you know, a coup or an attempted coup. And so the information environment was for, you know, particularly anybody, a younger person listening, you know, there wasn't the internet, there wasn't social media. And when you can't, you know, the local media frequently wasn't uh, necessarily that reliable to begin with. But when that shuts down, I mean, truly sitting there with a big, you know, foot by four inch by eight inch shortwave radio with a little antenna strung across the living room and dialing in BBC and they'd have different frequencies at different times of day. But I still, you know, the little theme that they would play at the beginning of BBC World Service and you had Voice of America and uh, other, other folks. But at least for for West Africa the coverage out of BBC was typically better than VOA but that was that was where you had to go to get information and you know finding out about it through external sources and then you know it would trickle out okay you know whether there's curfews or not sometimes the the regime that would come in or that was already in power was more pro US or pro west than others and that would sort of dictate the security environment and i remember not only having a curfew from dusk till dawn not being able to leave but certain times you know being restricted to the to the house for you know all day for a couple of days or a week until things sort of settled down and calmed down
0: and so uh how long were you in upper upper volta Uh, a.k.a. Burkina Faso, and where did you guys go from there?
1: Uh, Three years, and so from 80 to 83, uh, went from Burkina to Haiti uh, immediately after that. I started high school uh, in Minnesota in 83 as well, so we moved from uh, Burkina to Haiti in 83. I spent the summer, that first summer there in Haiti, and then the fall went up to Uh, boarding school up in in Minnesota and then went back and forth spending, you know, holidays and summers in Haiti Uh, for 83, 84. My parents moved uh, up to Minnesota out of Haiti in 85, I think.
0: So you were in and out of Haiti in a period of a bunch of coups because that's the period of time in which uh, the Baby Doc regime faltered and eventually fell, right?
1: That's right. So, you know, the Duvalier family, starting with uh, Francois Duvalier, Papa Doc, uh, his, was the president. I mean, notionally president. He was essentially a dictator. Jean-Claude Duvalier or Baby Doc succeeded him after he passed away. And then there he fell from power and fled, I think, to France, but eventually um Jean Bertrand Aristide took power, but there was some sort of interim power sharing type groups. And then certainly after Aristide was in power, he sort of came in and out of the political scene and ultimately left. But it was interesting to see, you know, people when when Baby Doc fled, you know, I was old enough at that point to be attuned to more of the political discussion and reading the news about as the Haitian people were trying to figure out, okay, you know, we want a democracy. What does a democracy look like? How do we update our, you know, our constitution, our governing documents? Because they they had not, whatever they were, was, you know, they were functionally empty when it came to the Diwali's wielding of power. So watching... A nascent democracy try and get their head around how do we structure our organization uh, was certainly interesting. And I mean, all these things, it's interesting too as I look at it. I mean, I, every single time, whether it was in Haiti, whether it was in West Africa, whether it was in Iran, there are common things that happen when you get, you know, sort of the crumbling of a, an established power base and a new group coming in. You see people, you know, freeze the borders, in place loyalists at the head of all the people who. Wield force, right? The coercive power of the state. So, whether it's the security service, whether it's the police, whether it's the defense ministry or entity, the placement of loyalists in there, taking over the media, controlling the radio, controlling the television. There are certain things that happen time and time again, wherever the setting that, you know, reflecting now and watching what, you know, happened and presumably might happen again they're they're constants if you, if you were trying to wield power as a unelected official there are certain things you have to do to make that job easier or in fact to make that job possible if you're going to do it without popular consent and it's particularly concerning when these things that you know I was accustomed to seeing in West Africa or accustomed to seeing around the world you start seeing them and seeing people planning to do them in the United States is something i never thought i'd see but rings as things you have to do. I mean, there are checklists, I think, for authoritarians that it doesn't matter where you are, what continent you're on, that you have to do. And certainly, I think a lot of indication that folks in and around Trump are planning on doing, and that's worrisome.
0: So then you joined the Army yourself. And where did you end up?
1: Uh, so I went from high school in Minnesota to Georgetown. I went to Georgetown on an ROTC scholarship. Went through uh, and again four years there, and as a result of that four-year scholarship, I had a four-year active duty commitment. So I was in the army, uh, an artillery officer assigned to F- uh, Fort Campbell, Kentucky, which is right on the Tennessee-Kentucky border, at the 101st Airborne Division. Spent four years there, um, loved it. It, w- it was a great. I would I would do it again um, ten times out of ten. At the same time, it was clear to me, you know, two, three years in that I didn't want to make a career out of the Army, but did...
0: I mean, there were no coups.
1: There were, right, although we did practice. Right, I mean,
0: like we were Tennessee practicing- had a continually elected government peacefully transferring power to other... Kentucky, same thing in the same period.
1: It's boring, right? Yeah. Although we, you know, kind of funny how the little cyclical nature of things we did go down because there was so much unrest in Haiti went down to Puerto Rico and we essentially practicing in the event that the U S military needed to go into Haiti to conduct noncombatant evacuation operations. If things really went both South and violent and anti-American and if the United States needed to go in to get Americans out and there others, uh, the 101st was on the, on the hook to do that. So, you know, we did a practice deployment down to Puerto Rico, to the mainland, you know, shipped everything out via Jacksonville onto ships unloaded in the port in Puerto Rico staged at Roosevelt roads, I think was the name of the Naval base and then, um, you know, invaded or practice assaulting, uh, this, this Island called Vieques, which has a, a live fire range, but part of Puerto Rico, but that was all sort of a, a dress rehearsal for, you know, do it. And then, change all the names from Puerto Rico to Haiti and do the same thing all over again. But it was, yeah, again, it was a great job. It was a time, again, because I was young and stupid, was tremendously upset. The first Gulf War was my senior year in college. And I remember getting drunk with all my RTC buddies pissed off that we had missed the war because – we were young and stupid right and uh you know you can't rather bullet, than rather
0: than saying, you're bulletproof wow, we, we, and you're not going to die get all the benefits and, of, and your friends are not going to die ROTC and nobody's and
1: nobody's going to get hurt without nobody's, having to go to a war yeah right nobody's going to get maimed nobody's going to have ptsd you're not thinking of any of that and so it was a you know 91 to 95 was relatively uh peaceful as far as the the regular active duty military was concerned and
0: all right. So how, uh, so then you, um, you know, from there you're basically coolless until you tried to overthrow, uh, the 2016 election. Um, and uh, you know, people have this sense that you kind of went into counterintelligence. Um, but that's a kind of like you, somebody just doesn't say I'm going into counterintelligence, right? You, You join the FBI and you kind of find your way to it. How did you end up as a counterintelligence guy?
1: Uh, It's a good question. I mean, I think a lot of it is a combination of random chance. I guess chance, that's an oxymoron, right? Chance is random, presumably. And, uh, you know, my background education wise, I had a degree in international affairs. I had been in. The army had a clearance there, although didn't really deal with classified information. I actually entered the bureau not as an agent, but as an analyst. They called them intelligence research specialists back when I joined, uh, doing domestic terrorism, particularly WMD, weapons of mass destruction, and domestic terrorism, which was, you know, back before it was cool. And you know, we were doing things like this was right after the Rikyo attack on the Tokyo subway. This is around the time where, you know, it was like old school domestic terrorism where the Bureau was still still is extraordinarily limited uh, just because of the same First Amendment concerns that we're facing today when it comes to looking at DT. But as an analyst, that was particularly challenging because if your job is to go out and gather information, the IT folks. Had it, and the international terrorism folks had it easy. They could go out, they could, you know, gather and put on kinds of things in case files. They could deal with the CIA or NSA or any number of, you know, foreign intelligence agencies and spoke a common language and had a common target. But on the DT side, it, we were extraordinarily limited what we could do, you know, even going out. And I remember getting the, having the lawyers yell at us because we were just kind of going through and looking at people who were engaging in, you know, hate speech, you know, not and being told, look, you can't, you can't put that in the file. You can't clip it out and keep it because it's all protected first amendment activity. And the debate always was, okay, well, if, if and when something happens where it becomes apparent that these folks were engaged in planning violent activity, and we didn't know about it. And now we're scrambling to figure out what happened. If we don't have a sort of baseline of knowledge leading up to that, we're behind the power curve. And the answer was, yeah, that's right. But, you know, unless you have a, you know, articulable reason to believe that they're, you know, engaged in some, you know, illegal activity or, or planning to engage in illegal activity, just, you know, sitting there looking at some white supremacist, you know, spewing out a bunch of hate, in a case, you can't collect and maintain that. So, you know, this, this idea of like the challenges of how to, how to investigate domestic terrorism have been true. I mean, shoot, this was like the mid nineties. I mean, they've been around for 30 years. These aren't new issues. And I don't think, you know, we had the same, again, same debate. Do we need a domestic terrorism law? Do we, are the laws that are on the book sufficient to deter and investigate terrorism? You know, we just had the new, you know, WMD legislation that came out where somebody used a weapon of mass destruction in whatever context, there were bigger hits, um, criminally from that perspective. But I think a lot of folks, you know, suddenly tune into what happened on January 6th and think that there's this new issue of challenges of investigating domestic terrorism, but it's, it's not new at all. And a lot of the challenges are there because of the restrictions that were put right. in place in the '70s because of the abuses of the FBI? I, so- I mean, I
0: want to say they're older even than that, right? So if you go back to the '30s, uh, you have this tension in the between the Justice Department and the White House and the early FBI about, you know, J. Edgar Hoover wants to do investigations of communists. Uh, Roosevelt wanted to figure out what the fascists were doing domestically and Hoover's not so into that. And there's no evidence, not a lot of evidence that they're engaged in criminal activity, at least at the beginning. And so, you know, the FBI is using the absence of good criminal predicates as excuses not to go after, not to investigate fascists and and concocting uh, whatever national security predicates it needs to go after communists. And that's a that's a tension. And nobody really knew where the lines were because they hadn't really been drawn yet. And that's a tension that goes back almost to the beginning of the Bureau.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I don't think, you know, and it evolves over time. I mean, I think, again, people would be, you know, thanks to, you know, I, I know you interviewed him, maybe for this show, Rachel Maddow and talking about the, you know, the things that were going on within the United States with the, about the Nazis in particular, but also the communists and what the government did and, and especially what they didn't do and weren't able to successfully do that, that tension about permissible political activity and where that crosses the line and, and the beginning point, of when the government should start looking at it is the is the hardest in my mind, sort of from a from a practitioner's perspective, where you specifically should draw that line where society is happy and content for the government to start intruding on that activity. That that point, that's the hardest question in my mind. And I, you know, but it, it continued, Ben. I mean, there's crazy stuff. Like, you know, Linda Johnson was concerned about his potential challenge at the, at the democratic national Freedom convention Democrats and, and had and asked Hoover to monitor the DNC and Hoover did. And by all accounts that included, you know, monitoring people's conversations. And can you imagine that? I mean, this is a, a, a president telling, you know, well, we can unfortunately, I think, imagine it now, but a, a president telling the F, his FBI director to go to his party's primary and essentially, you know, wiretap and surveil all his opponents to just make sure that he doesn't have any surprises. And that was, you know, this wasn't 1930, this was 19, you know, mid sixties, right. Or whatever year that was 60s. But how
0: does this lead you to, all right. So it's the nineties and you're, you're looking at, you know, who might want to poison people on the subway and you're looking at, you know, you got your, Tim McVeigh types, how does that lead you to spying on Russians?
1: So it was clear to me, the, the FBI is a very agent-centric organization. It still is. It was really, really agent-centric um, back, probably I'd argue, up until the post-911 environment, but in 96- And what do you mean agent What I mean by that is, so you have, the FBI is made is roughly 35,000 people, maybe a little bit more now, of which there are roughly 12,000 or so special agents. The rest of the Bureau's professional staff include analysts, they include CPAs, they include financial folks, they include all the HR people, they include the tech folks, all the things that make the organization go- One of the biggest chunks are of the non-agent population or the analysts and then technical specialists, you know, the folks who work down at the lab or the, you know, the folks developing technical things to make the Bureau go. But so less than half of the Bureau's uh, uh, employees are special agents. Having said that, the, the, the driving force and the leadership of the FBI has traditionally been and remains... Agents. I mean, the director is an appointed position. There's only one political appointee in the FBI. But by and large, when you look at the number two official who's the deputy director of the FBI, there's an associate deputy director. Those two have always been agents. The level below that, a kind of new position called the executive assistant director at least on the operational side, are all special agents. The assistant directors on the operational side are all special agents. And the the leadership of FBI field offices, the 56 field offices, are special agents in charge or SACs, but they are special agents, not analysts or anybody else. And so...
0: And and I, I you know, I, just to footstomp this point of how, how significant this difference is in the culture, I remember when I was a young reporter first starting to cover the FBI... You would um, you would have there was this code word for special agent, which is gun carrying. Um, you know, you see, your name would come up and somebody would say, is he gun carrying? Um, and that was just like that was like, is he a special agent? Is he part of the tribe? Right.
1: Yeah. And and it used to, you know, you were either an agent or you were support support staff. That was what non-agents were called. And some of it, look, I mean, there's part of it that is, you know, the name implies what the organization does. It's the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The, the investigations are done and led by agents because they are, you know, law enforcement officers who at the day in, day out working level of the FBI, the core of what the FBI does is conduct investigations. And those are primarily but not solely done by agents. Now, of course, you have teams, right? You have agents, you have analysts, you have investigators, right? Investigators need not be just agents, but certainly then, and still to this day, if y- you wanted to be sort of driving, and some of this goes to like, you know, the advice I heard, I don't know, when I was fairly young, do when you go to work for an organization, do the thing that the organization does, right? If you go work for Ford Motor Company, make cars. If you go work for You know, IBM make computers. Yeah, there's a space, you know, if you love finances, if you love human resources, great and do it. But there is a certain aspect of working in the core activity of whatever it is that your organization does that creates sort of a a primacy, a a leading role. And looking at the FBI, it's like, well, it's interesting being an agent, but gosh, or an analyst, but, you know, agents are. Going out there and investigating. They're traveling. They're making the decisions. If I look up the chain, it's all agents. And it was clear that, you know, for what I wanted to do, while I enjoyed being an analyst, I really wanted to be an agent. So I applied to be an agent. There's, you have to go through the whole process. Application was accepted, went down to Quantico. um, You do a wish list of where you want to go. I had DC, Chicago, Boston was number three. I got Boston, went up there. That was a very, and this is where luck comes in, right? I mean, they took a look and said, okay, he's got an international affairs degree. He came out of the Army. Our counterintelligence squad is a couple agents short. And, you know, maybe the 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 drug squad might have been short too. But, you know, they're looking for somebody who was, a you know, a, a state police officer or something before they came to the FBI. So it was a logical fit to put me there. And the interesting thing about Boston was it – it probably was, I, I don't know if it was quite top 10. It might have been the 12th largest field office, but there was only one counterintelligence squad. So that one squad handled everything from whether it was a Russian counterintelligence case or Chinese counterintelligence case or an espionage case or a proliferation case, whatever it might be, that one squad handled everything. And so I got to do a broad set of counterintelligence work. At the same time, Boston was interesting enough that it got... Or, you, there were enough things in Boston's AOR, which is Massachusetts and Maine and New Hampshire, but everything from Harvard to MIT to Lincoln Labs to Hanscom Air Force Base to uh, Rhode Island was part of it. So everything down at the Naval War College and the military activities there, uh, Bangor, the, the sub base up in Maine, there were a lot of very interesting national security things that happened in Boston Division that, you know, 12 of us did all of it. So it was a, it was a good place to learn counterintelligence.
0: All right. So this is where we have to take a little side detour and talk about The Americans, which as I understand it, is a show that you have never seen. Is that correct?
1: Yep, that's right.
0: And why have you never watched The Americans? I have
1: tried. I have tried watching the first episode at least a couple of times. And the reason I haven't watched it was one of the... So the, the, the series is based on a group of uh, on at least on the show as i understand it a pair of russian illegals and what i mean by illegals are cadre russian previously soviet intelligence officers in other words members trained members of first the kgb and now the svr who go through training they're fully you know part you know they get their leave and earning statements from the svr they have been through the the training course and Rather than being assigned under cover of a Ministry of Foreign Affairs position or a Pravda journalist, they assume completely new identities. And traditionally, not just new identities, but non-Russian identities. And so that is, if it sounds complicated, it's because it is complicated. It it takes a long time to receive that training. It takes an extraordinary amount of work for the Russians to identify and build these cover legends, the, the persona that these intelligence officers assume. Uh, and there happened to be a pair of them, a couple that were in Boston uh, around the time that uh, I was assigned up there. There was also, you know, other pairs and singletons uh, around the U.S. Some who came and went, but in any event, the FBI, along with you know partners in in the U.S. government, investigated these folks for more or less a decade uh, before finally uh, arresting uh, ten, I think, of them, and ultimately swapped them. For a bunch of uh, Russians who had been working for the U.S. and our allies, but one of those, the 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 idea that uh, one of these couples formed the basis for the Americans, and you know, a husband and wife team living under assumed identity, and the reason you know, so it's very close and mirrored on the case that I and I worked on the Boston couple for for a long time, and my watching it again, it's stylized, right? It's it's for a American audience produced by Hollywood. And so there's a lot of dramatic license taken by the amount of adventure and danger and high suspense that comes every episode and just watching it and seeing the delta between the screen presentation and the real world reality was just not something I could overcome. And I, I understand it's great narrative. It's great drama, but I can't,
0: Okay. All right. Can't do it. I want to explore that Delta a little bit because, uh, in the show, and I suspect a lot of our listeners have, uh, watched the show, uh, at least in part, the, uh, couple is kind of a, uh, I don't know. They're kind of super, uh, super agents. They, you know, keep the whole thing from their kids who they're raising as normal American kids. But, uh, they, you know, usually kill somebody in the course of a a show, they, they run off and have affairs, uh, in order to uh, get information from all kinds of people, from teenagers to important scientists. They, uh, uh, save the world a couple times. Um, uh, what were the real illegals doing as far? I mean, you guys watched them for 10 years. What was the reality of life as a Russian illegal in the United States?
1: I think if people, the best, easiest way is, is to lead a life of meticulous boredom. And what I mean by that, you have to go back. Illegals have been in the Russian intelligence sort of world. Going back to revolutionary periods, I mean, Dzerzhinsky and and Ford had this idea that – and a lot of it has root in this Russian paranoia of being excluded, of being thrown out of places, this idea that they didn't have true durable friendships and allies – and the idea being that, yes, they had robust intelligence operations and robust intelligence presences around the world, particularly including you know the primary adversary very quickly became the United States, but that they wanted in the event that there were any sort of hostilities which would cause the United States to eject and throw out all of their official personnel, that they would have these stay behind, the, these golden eggs, these – you love this phrase, Ben, an insurance policy of – Illegal. I see what you did there. yeah, Yeah, right. People who would be still working as intelligence officers within the United States, unbeknownst to anybody in the United States, who then could go and do everything from potentially lethal type activity to servicing high value agents that they had recruited within the U.S. government. But the entire idea is you you put their in other word you know people call them sleepers and the reason they're sleepers and that word is used is that you're not using them in a operational way because the minute you start engaging in operational activity you raise your profile you raise the risk that the host counterintelligence service in this case the FBI is going to see you running an agent or see you clearing a dead drop or see you trying to assassinate somebody so if you're Russia in practice The last thing you want your illegals doing is anything that's going to raise your profile. For all intents and purposes, the number one thing you want to do is blend in, gain U.S. citizenship. You know, through whatever process you can finagle naturalization. You know, being the for for non-U.S. legends, uh, the best way to do that. And you don't want to do anything that is going to create any hint to the FBI or anybody else. That you're not what you say you are, you know, some Canadian engineer and his Canadian wife slash real estate agent. That's that's who you want to appear to be. And so if you're out there doing anything tradecraft wise, you're you're putting yourself in that at risk. So you're not going to have, you know, weekly assassinations or seductions of cabinet officials or I, I don't know what the story is, but the the reality is a good illegal is going to be extraordinarily boring. By design.
0: And so um, this strikes me as uh, uh, sort of. Hmm, now, let me start that again. Um, okay, but this is, uh, first of all, by design, not very dramatic. But secondly, it doesn't sound like a productive intelligence apparatus. Um, w- was there. And, you know, and it actually doesn't sound like anything to be particularly afraid of because you have a programmatic activity that involves planting people there and in the United States and then not doing anything with them as long as you've identified them uh, and, you know, like in the event of a rupture of relations, you can round them up and send them away. Um, What's the what's the. What's the threat here that requires so much FBI attention?
1: Well, yeah, that's a great question. I think a question we all asked ourselves as we were going through it, because... On the one hand, both sides are putting an extraordinary amount of resources into running the illegals on the one hand and investigating them on the other. I mean, they went, again, just to get into the United States, there was a 10 plus year lead up period where they were trained and then given their identities and then lived abroad, then moved to Canada, then from Canada into France and France into into Boston to Harvard. So that just paying for that that's that's all the run up that's 10 years of investment on the russian side to get them there and then once they're here it's the same deal i mean they're paying for all these folks that not only to live and all their expenses but all the support folks you know the what's called line in which is the illegals group within the SVR that does illegal support to all the things that take to run these folks You know, whether it's like sending them tasking, receiving their reporting, meeting them, you know, there is an extraordinary amount of resources that the Russians put into this. And on the other side, you know, we did a huge amount on the Bureau side. I mean, we had them, you know, you can read on on public filings. It's very clear that there was a robust investigation uh, of all of these couples uh, and singletons. And by robust, I mean, certainly FISAs, including... Not only electronic and cellular communications, but physical searches and microphones and GPS monitoring and just a lot of things that, if you're being extraordinarily careful not to get caught, take a long time and a lot of resourcing and energy to do. So, at the end of the day, what did what did they get out of it? I mean, I think you know, going back, they thought because they didn't know that we had been handing their ass to them for you know near a decade. On on our side, we watched uh, you know. Everything from tradecraft, and again, this is this is public. They started out and until the very end used like old school invisible ink, you know, and and invisible carbon paper to that warms my heart. Write messages and then put bogus, you know, messaging over the top, and then using you know, ink to raise. They would receive again at the beginning, all the way through to the end. Sometimes shortwave broadcasts, which were like encrypted five-digit little groups of numbers that they would then take a one-time pad, raise that from being not visible into visible and do the transformation and pull the message out of that. And so seeing that and tried and true stayed through the whole time, we watched them go back and forth with newer forms of communication. So for a time they... Uh, you know, went to a steganography platform from a the time then they went to computer-based encryption from a the time they used other sorts of communications. And so as we're watching them, we are able to see the nuts and bolts of how Russian tradecraft is evolving. And we're also watching and seeing, okay, what is it that they are being tasked to do? You know, what it is he was, the, the male was at the Kennedy School at Harvard for a uh, master public uh, administration, I think, program. But you know what was he being tasked to do? Who was he reporting on? What were the things that the Russians were interested in? So we can watch all of that. And at the end of the day, the the decision whether or not to take them down is okay. Once you remove them, I mean, you take them out of action for a while, and you kind of make the Russians blind for a little bit. But they're not going to stop. So eventually, they're going to go out and they're going to come up with a new set of illegals, and then just the game starts all over again. So it's a balance between, you you don't want to ignore them because you don't, I mean, that's not acceptable. You've got these highly trained, highly paid, high value officers operating in the US and you're saying, well, you know, they're not going to do anything unless we go to war. So just ignore them. You can't do that. So it is though, at the end of the day, I always personally had some question about thinking the Russians were not getting their money's worth out of these folks. Um, You know, and as good as they were and as hard as it is to live as an illegal, it's like all this money that they were spending on it, if they did other things, you know, whether it was putting into straight, you know, traveling uh, officers who come under cover of a businessman or something else, or, you know, enhancing their technical capabilities, would their money be better spent from a return perspective on other things? But again, a lot of it just goes to that, the Russian insecurity. I think that is such a key, you know, whether it's the war experience that idea that we just have to have a backup, something that we can rely on that nobody else knows that we know we've got, even though it's a money sink, even though it's not really giving them anything, just that sort of peace of of mind when things go bump at 2 a.m. in the middle of the night that they know they've got these couples sprinkled around the world. You know, that's my guess why they did it.
0: I mean, it has some relationship to the conspiratorial nature of the party itself right so you know the the communist party pre-revolution uh and all over the world in various you know pre-revolutionary societies always had underground cells and always had an overt wing and a not overt wing and this feels like a kind of intelligence extension of that uh, conspiratorial mindset
1: yeah absolutely i mean i think it's again i don't think i'm giving anything away but like the people the the residentura, the 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 people on the ground the, the the svr officers who are assigned to the united states whether it's you know in dc or the mission to the un or wherever else they might be stationed typically are not at all aware of who the illegals were you didn't see contact because again that's a vulnerability point they assume the russians assume that we know most if not all of their intelligence officers even if they're assigned under diplomatic cover and the last thing you want to do is take a known like if the you know the the FBI knows who an assortment of SVR officers are and presumably the russians assume that they're being followed by a variety of means, the last thing they want to do is have them in contact with these illegals and inadvertently lead the FBI from following somebody who they know to meeting somebody that the FBI doesn't know and all of a sudden you're burning, you know, you're you're burning your illegal. And so consequently what that means is that the illegals, all the support things that have to happen, if there's, you know, new tradecraft and new training or if there's some problem and you have to meet somebody wasn't done By the resident, it
0: it has its own apparatus to do it.
1: Right. And that would extend to not even like, and if they're not going to support it, why even Why even introduce the risk of knowing about it? The last thing you need is, well, why, why tell somebody who's here stationed officially, who's going to be out drinking with his buddies who are also in the residential, who talks about, oh, hey, by the way, you know, we got a couple in Yonkers and we got a couple in Boston. And all of a sudden they talk to, you know, somebody else in the embassy and that person in the embassy happens to be an asset of the FBI. So you don't, that, that vulnerability you don't want. So consequently, I mean, maybe, maybe the resident Knows that the head knows about it, but you know, in most cases, there's not a whole lot of benefit to telling them unless it's some emergency and you got to do it. But you can, you know, send that out in a cable and say, "Hey, tomorrow you need to go do this, that, or the other thing," and you know, cover that risk when you get to it.
0: But the one of the things that really struck me about the Americans um, is that and in comparison to the real thing is that the real guys actually didn't seem that good the americans spoke flawless accentless english you know they take american names and it's completely plausible that they're from you know iowa or whatever the, the real guys when they arrested they were, all had russian accents they're all you know uh, obviously ethnically russian um, uh, they don't have any obvious intimacy with American culture. It's kind of like, you know, you're stationing a bunch of Russian immigrants who are kind of like any other Russian immigrants all around America um, and, you know, asking them to blend in. It's, it's a little bit farcical.
1: Yeah. I mean, none of these folks are going to be mistaken from somebody out of Iowa, right? I mean, they all had, as you indicated, you know, noticeable accents. It was funny because they would have like Anne Foley, the Elena Vavalova was her name, the, the wife of the Boston couple who had a story where his, her, I think she said like her mother or one of her parents was from, I want to see either Prague or the Czech Republic or something to explain why when somebody say, oh, you have an accent, she'd say, oh, yeah, and give some vague sort of gray ephemeral East European origin story where the average American is like, oh, okay, whatever. Those times where they would run across somebody who's like, oh, no, I lived in Russia, that's a Russian accent, they would <laughs> they would do everything in their power to make sure they never came across the person again because they, they, it was that for somebody who knows the Russian language and knows a Russian accent, it's unmistakable. But, you know, having said that, they weren't mopes. I mean, they weren't they weren't stumbling, you know, some of the stories that come out, if you, you know, if you follow some of the GRU knuckle draggers who tried, you know, assassinating Skripal and are running around getting arrested outside of Switzerland at the, at WADA, at the, at the World Anti-Doping Agency, they were not as clumsy as all that. I mean, I think some of that just is culturally, the SVR is, is more uh, refined and uh, competent generally in terms of the smoothness of their operations. So I don't want to make it sound like they were, Phones, but at the same time, they were not again one of the disservices. Not having watched it, it was not the kind of thing where you're talking to somebody like you or me, and all of a sudden it's revealed that no, you're not really, you know, Ben from Massachusetts, or you know, Pete from wherever. You're really Igor that grew up in St. Petersburg. It, it it was not. I don't think anybody would be t- stunned. I mean, people were surprised just because it's hard to wrap your head around the fact that somebody you thought was. Canadian Don was in fact, um, Andre from wherever the hell he was from.
0: So what has happened to these people? How many of them are in the Duma now since we, uh, traded them back for Sergei Skrupal and, and other, um, uh, of our, Agents.
1: Yeah. I and mean, so, in part of that, let me start with the last thing first. I mean, it is a little bit of a bullshit thing that we traded, right? I mean, we rather than imprisoning these people, we gave Putin uh, 10 of them. I think the 11th was actually a you know somebody who uh, was arrested in Crete and uh, or escaped before he was able to be extradited uh, back to Russia. But the exchange was for these folks, including, as you indicated, Skripal who then after this trade, you know, give it a few years and Putin decides he's going to go try and assassinate him in in London. And that to me is like, OK, if you're going to make a deal, I mean, there are rules of the road. And, I, you know, Putin has always been very clear that he views uh, traders as something that you never escape from and he won't go to the ends of the earth to find you and kill you. However, another one of the rules of the road are if you're going to trade your people, then you your view of like, it's a difference how he views a Russian who betrayed somebody versus a CIA officer who was trying to recruit them. The CIA officer is, you know, hands off. They're just doing their job. But if at some point you trade for your people, it's almost you're you're letting go your claim to chase them around the world and try and kill them, which he he didn't uh, follow. But of the ones, so when they went back, I don't know, she wrote a book, which I bought it's in Cyrillic and I like, I don't speak Russian. And so having to use Google translate to go through each word is, is a lugubrious chore. He ended up working initially for a Russian bank. He was on for several years, certainly during the Trump administration was on, uh, Rocio one on their little, the, the, that, but everybody follows now where they have the little round table of experts and they all complain about the Ukrainian Nazis and how, you know, they're going to nuke America, but he was on there as a, an expert on Russian culture and understanding the mind of the West. I haven't seen him recently, uh, but they're, you know, they're both there. They had two kids born in Canada. Interestingly enough, the Canadians uh, rejected their citizenship. And then they went, it went all the way, they appealed it went all the way up to the Canadian Supreme court. I know the youngest one, got his citizenship back. I don't know if the oldest did or not, but they're, you know, I don't know what happened to the kids. I did. I think I talked to somebody who had interviewed them for a a book or some sort of media thing and said there was some, you know, there's a little bit of like messed up psyche, which again is a common phenomenon. Right. And is not, I think, you know, Russians understood it and had like, you know, staff psychologists that at whatever point the parents eventually broke cover with their kids Which was usually when the kids were old enough to, like, not, you know, be eight years old and telling their classmates about it. When that happened in high school or later, that invariably came with real potential psych issues. And so, you know, it makes sense.
0: Did you ever have a chance to debrief them at all or to interview them? Or was your relationship with them always one of, we watch you from afar? And you know, get into your safe deposit boxes, and you know, conduct FISA surveillance of you. But we've never, like, have you ever met any of
1: them? No, only arresting them. I mean, I left Boston uh, when the investigation was still very much uh, well underway, and so I went down to headquarters, and then from there to Washington Field Office, and the investigations continued for many years. And so I was fortunate when they were when it came time to take them all down. You know, the Boston folks called and said, "Hey, do you want to come up and arrest them?" And I. Yes, was the, was the obvious answer, but you know they had the the agents who had been you know watching them and working them for you know that those several years leading up to the arrest were the ones who uh, interviewed them. They both refused to talk, um, you know, and invoked, but you know did get to go out on the arrest team and go in there. It was uh, one of the kid's birthdays, and they're having cake, and he was getting ready to fly off to Europe the next day or that afternoon. But uh, that was very odd for sure because your your description is very much accurate that you know the job up until that point was to do so much to be unseen, to be unnoticed. If you wanted to install a microphone, if you wanted to conduct a search, it was if there was any risk whatsoever, it was always, well, wait, let's not do it. Let's wait for another opportunity, because you just didn't ever want to do anything which would highlight the fact that the Bureau was aware from them of them. So steeped in all of what we did was this idea of absolute caution and circumspection. And so to be standing there in their living room with both of them in handcuffs, it was a, a very cognitively dissonant, um, you know, in there. Was it a rush? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's the same, you know, you get that same sort of like, you know, most arrests, like people, you, you whether it's time dilation or, you know, speeding up, I guess dilation is speeding up, right. Or slowing down. But I mean, they're, they're very, you you know, the sensory response to that is, is, is noticeable and, you know, like recognize, okay, I'm, you know, things seem to be going slower. I've got to like, you know, it, 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 it was. Um,
0: this is now, this arrest is in 2010, if memory serves, maybe 2011. I think 10. And, It is another six years before you, you know, get wrapped up in clearing Hillary Clinton unwarrantedly of of uh, abuse of her emails and, you know, giving classified information to uh, uh, everybody and his mother and then overthrowing Donald Trump. What did you do with the six years in between? I mean your 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 sort of heyday as a coup plotter hadn't come around yet.
1: Yeah, and you know, and that's the frustrating thing because I think people like, you know, to the extent they know me outside of the FBI, they know me either because of mid-year exam, which was the Clinton email investigation or Crossfire Hurricane, which was uh, the Russian interference in two thousand six. Yeah, neither and of which
0: we're talking about. Neither of which we're talking ta- about we're, and, and we're maybe, talking about the, maybe the other coups. If you've we read yeah,
1: Maybe if you read the book, you know about the uh the illegals up in Boston. But the ball I mean, there's like a 15 year additional career, they're doing a lot of work that, you know, it's frustrating that like people in the bureau know this, but, you know, it's primarily doing uh, espionage work. And what I mean by that is the bureau has a counterintelligence mission broadly of watching what foreign intelligence services and foreign nations do intelligence-wise within the United States and against United States' interests. And so that can include watching what Russian intelligence officers and Chinese intelligence officers, Iranians, Cubans, whoever the case may be, watching what they're doing and who they're targeting. There's a subset of what the Bureau calls espionage work that when those officers or services actually recruit somebody inside the Department of State or the CIA or the, God forbid, the FBI or whatever the case may be, those investigations the bureau terms espionage investigations, and in addition to having sort of counterintelligence intelligence aspects, they're also criminal investigations, right? So you have to go out; you're collecting. So evidence. these are like
0: the Robert Hansen,
1: cases. correct? Aldrich Ames, right? And so you know, and those are the those are the high level people that people that most folks have heard of. But on a day in day out basis, you know, at any given time, there are a lot of not quite as grave or serious investigations that are going on, and that's. What I was doing, both at Washington Field and at headquarters, kind of moving up the chain of you know working them as a supervisor, then supervising broader programs at headquarters, and coming back and having the entire espionage program. But it was great. I mean, I love that work. And I mean, went around the world, um, put a bunch of people in jail, had the the advantage. I think the counterintelligence world in the FBI can be a little different from the rest of the FBI in that it isn't criminal in nature. The need to collect and preserve evidence is evidence, the requirement to write your paper and do things in a way that are going to withstand some jerky defense attorney cross-examining you on the stand. That adversarial process lends a precision, a different type of precision to work then occurs in an intelligence and counterintelligence perspective. And I found that very valuable, not only for myself, but, you know, the agents who had, you know, working with me and for me to have that rigor. And, you know, and it's the best of both worlds because at the same time, it's not, you know, you're not going after some mope who's bilking Medicare. You're not going after some, you know, asshole who's trafficking in CSAM. You're going up against, you know, the premier folks in hostile foreign governments whose entire purpose and funding is to collect American secrets and recruit Americans. So, you know, the, the intellectual challenge of that coupled with the sort of building a criminal case, um, was a great combination. And again, you know, frustrating that, you know, people sit there and say, Oh, you know, Pete was, you know, this or that. It's like, well, primarily Pete was a espionage agent, right. Working a bunch of cases and just happened to come in across these you know, bigger things towards the end of my career, but there's a lot of other really interesting stuff that I was fortunate to be able to do.
0: Yeah. So, what are some of those cases? I mean, most spy cases that we are aware of are pretty famous. Um, what are the what What are the uh, major cases that you worked that people will have heard of?
1: So, I, if That they've heard of, I mean, certainly Ed Snowden. Try me. Yeah, Ed Snowden and Julian Assange as as an assistant special agent in charge. Folks will have heard of that. If, uh, you know, lesser known, like as a squad supervisor at WFO, um, there was a group of folks within DOD that were providing information unbeknownst to them to the PRC uh, to a guy named Tyson Guo, who was based out of New Orleans, who was in contact with a guy named James Fondren, who was a PACOM. Uh, GS, non-uniformed employee at the Pentagon, and Greg Bergerson, who was a foreign military sales um, specialist within DOD. He was getting information about Taiwan and the PRC and passing it to uh, the PR, information about Taiwan and passing it to the PRC, put all three of them in jail. Uh, John Kiriakou, uh, who disclosed was found guilty of disclosing uh, identities of CIA officers. Um, so he's
0: a fascinating character because he was originally publicly thought of as a kind of whistleblower who had worked on the uh, w- worked on the secret prisons, interrogations matters, and I believe was the first agency employee kind of publicly to describe things like waterboarding. Um, and then a couple years later gets arrested. What's your sense of who he really was?
1: I don't, I don't know. I think at the end of the day, he wanted his, I mean, again, this is my speculation, right? And I want to be I, 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 short answer, I don't know. I mean, he, it is certainly true that publicly he was initially a proponent of the RDI program and that it had been helpful and beneficial. He changed that story if memory serves. Um, there, and you know, again, we investigated them after it, it was a long sort of convoluted path that got there. We found, uh, U S government DOD guards found what appeared to be surveillance photos in the legal papers of, high-value detainees down at Guantanamo. when I'm talking like the the high, the behind Camp 7, the the really high-level folks, the Abu Zubaydahs and the Hasawis and uh, Ramzi bin al of the group down there. And the question was, you know, who are these people and how was it that they were identified and how did the photos get there? And uh, Pat Fitzgerald was uh, appointed to sort of lead up the effort because we had to get it out of – because that was involved in their legal papers and the prosecutions that were going on and the still unclear, and certainly at the time was unclear whether they would be held under, you know, tried under military UCMJ or under an Article Three court. Uh, the need was to get the investigation and the chain of command out from the regular FBI and DOJ because you didn't want to contaminate those trials. And so I worked with Pat Fitzgerald, who was fantastic. And, you know, eventually, long story short, figured out legitimate reason of why those photos were there and what they were. But in the course of doing that, um, determined that Kiriakou had disclosed the identities of some CIA officers to members of the media. I, why he did it, you'd have to ask him. I mean, I don't feel right speculating about that just because the information I know and have, but you know, last I heard, I think he was, or still may have some talk show on RT and um, you know, is getting money from them. If he's not still now, he did for a while, but, you know it's uh it it was an interesting case if only a window into Guantanamo that I I never you know spent a lot of time down there and it was just a is a bizarre sort of unique place in the world
0: and what about snowden you uh you worked that case back in 2013 and 14 when it was fresh not with a Uh, I'm not going to ask you about Assange because that gets too into 2016, and I don't want to talk about 2016. Um, But Snowden was, uh, you know, you worked those cases before they were, uh, before Assange was a creature of the 2016 uh, um, election story. Uh, What did you make of Snowden and his... um, motives and behavior and, you know, all the other stuff, both prior to 2016 and in light of what happened in 2016? How should we understand him?
1: You know, that's a good question. And again, I need to be careful about not saying really anything beyond what's in court filings. You know, what I tell people and have told people in the past is, you know, Snowden has come out with rationales for what he did and why he did it. And an interesting exercise, if you want to be rigorous about it, is to collect all the things about what he said, why he did it, you know, whistleblowing and his the path he went and the things he did, and then actually go and look at the dates that are disclosed in charging documents and other places that the U.S. government has asserted uh, occurred. And when you line up the dates of what he did with the reasons and rationale that he gave for doing it and the steps he says he took, there's there some important and notable um, discrepancies there. And so, you know, make it out what you will, uh, you know, there's clearly he's charged, he is presumed innocent. I don't know that we'll ever see him uh, in the United States. I, I would certainly also point to the, just the fact that he applied for and uh, accepted Russian citizenship and took an oath to Russia post invasion of Ukraine. And so, somebody who is uh, appears to be, you know, very set in their mind about the the moral reasons for doing what they did, coexisting in the context of an invading power engaging in war crimes, is is you know, I guess you know, I'd ask your listeners to you know just evaluate that and and, and see what you think of that. And I, you know, the last point is that there is always this idea that you know, if you look at people, whether it is Thoreau, whether it is Martin Luther King, whether it is Gandhi, people who have notably engaged in civil disobedience and been proponents of civil disobedience of breaking the law to bring attention to injustice. There is always a consistent theme of not break the law and then run away is the idea that you break the law and then take the consequence that comes that take the judgment of your peers. Because at the end of the day, no one person is the one creating the law. It is the body of people who create the law. And so if you feel that you need to break that for a, ra- for a righteous reason, then do it. But a component of doing it then is you tell the people who made that law, this is why I did it. And this is why I thought it was important to break it and face their judgment. You you can't be, no no one person is the the ultimate judge of all that. You can decide to break the law, but then you don't get to be the person who runs away and, you know, exists as the person to 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 meet out the judgment. The judgment rests with the with the people and the judgment rests with the trial that Snowden needs to come back and face his peers. And this bullshit about, oh, I'll never face an honest trial. You know, the government will keep things hidden. The the media, the government media apparatus will hide the truth and I'll never get a fair trial. That's nonsense. Um, but we'll see. I would not What are we here? Beginning of December, I'd much rather be in Northern Virginia, D.C. than sitting in a Moscow apartment watching that gray winter approach.
0: All right. So what are the three things about counterintelligence and Russian counterintelligence in particular, American counterintelligence with respect to Russia that people don't understand uh, that they need to understand?
1: There's a lot of activity going on in DC every day, but all across the United States, Russian intelligence services are conducting activity both on the ground and in the cyberspace environment that the FBI and other government entities are investigating and responding to. So there's a lot of it going on out of sight.
0: Okay, so so hold hold the other two for a minute. Let's let's talk about that one. What does that mean? Does that mean like a whole bunch of illegals who are running around who people like you are following? Does it mean, uh, you know, a kind of background level of gray zone cyber activity? Does it mean something else? What are the baskets of activity that you're thinking about when you say that?
1: I think it means all of that and more. It means that on a daily basis, there are intelligence officers assigned to The embassy and diplomatic establishments around the US that are working, going out and collecting intelligence, which is information that is not publicly available. It means that there are travelers, whether they are exchange scientists or students, whether they are visiting businessmen, it means whether they are tourists, there are people who are coming in who are actually either officers or agents of the Russian intelligence services. It means there are people that the Russians have recruited in the US government or other governments that are providing information that are being investigated by the FBI. It means that Russian entities are trying to get circuit boards to help build drones to use against Ukraine, that FBI agents are going out there talking to uh, industries and individuals who might be intermediaries who are wittingly or unwittingly sending those ultimately on to the government of Russia to stop that. It means that there are cyber agents who are watching and combating what Russian actors are doing, whether they are cadre cyber people in the SVR, GRU, or FSB, or whether they're contractors penetrating U.S. government systems, or people like you know the old Internet Research Agency in Saint Petersburg contractors who are going out and manipulating um, perception, whether on social media or in the public sphere in general. So all of those things are going on every day. All of those things are being worked on by FBI agents and analysts every day. And it is going on across America. And 99% plus of it is never been on and never will be on the public's radar.
0: How much of it is on 99% plus is not on the public radar and never will be? What percent of it, in your view, does the FBI have visibility into?
1: That's a good question. I don't know. I'd love to say 99% plus, but I mean, you always worry about what you don't which you don't know, right? I mean, we, in general, like with criminals and everything else, we tend to get the stupid ones or the simple ones and the people who are sophisticated criminals or sophisticated intelligence officers or sophisticated agents, you worry that, you know, and look at Aldrich James, you look at Robert Hansen, you look at Anna Montez, um, you know, friend, Pete Lapp, who is a case agent on Montez, has a book on her coming out, I think, in a a week. And plug that, I haven't read it yet, but Pete's a, a good agent. But if you look at their histories of spying, they spied for all, each one of them, and Gwendolyn Kenneth Myers and Jonathan Pollard, and I mean, just go on and on and on and on with people that you, you might have heard. They spied for years before they were arrested. So what that means is that they were successfully operating at some point before the U.S. government, before the U.S. intelligence community, before the FBI became aware of them. You know, certainly there's a period of like running a case and building evidence to get you in a position to arrest and prosecute them, but they weren't, they weren't stopped before they started doing damage, some were, and and typically, you know, I could throw a bunch of names out that people never heard of before because they weren't that damaging because we caught them early. But the good ones run for a while, and the worry always is was one of my biggest worries is not not the cases we're investigating and where we're at, but like what what aren't we seeing at all? What is going on right now that we have no notion about? Because if you look, like it's now NCSC. it used to be NCIX. The National Counterintelligence Executive, which, you know, whether or not they're needed, that's a discussion for another time. But they would put out this interesting graphic that would list active penetrations, active spies within the US government and the range of their espionage activity. So you had like on your x axis was the uh, time period of when they were active. And if you pick a year and drew a line, you would inevitably go through three or four individuals, which meant at any given period in time, there were at least three to four active agents working for a hostile foreign power that were not arrested, that were not out of access. And so, you know, things ebb and flow. But if you don't have a sense of like, oh yeah, you know, we got identified three to four folks, five folks, whatever that we know are working for the Chinese or the Russians or whatever. If you think there aren't any, or you think they're only a couple, there's that really uneasy feeling of like, Statistically, history has shown us that there's gonna be right. We should be at three we we right should now. be seeing things, and the, it, it's not. Oh, we only have one bad espionage case. That's not a that's not a happy story, right? It's like okay, you only have one, but. Doesn't that mean there's probably a few that you have no goddamn idea whatsoever? And all the knock-on effects from that, right? It's like, FBI, you're not doing your job, but presumably, you know, a lot of the time, the best leads have come from human sources that people like the CIA have recruited. So it makes you wonder if you're not seeing it, not only is the Bureau not doing their job, but has the CIA not recruited who they need to recruit? Has the NSA not tasked the, the various places of information that would tell you who those penetrations are. And it's, I I never felt like, oh, we're doing great. It was always like, oh shit, we're missing something. So, um, but anyway, that's short,
0: so short answer, you're confident that 99% of it is outside public visibility, but you have no idea what percentage of it is outside
1: FBI visibility. I would hope a small percentage, but I mean, that's impossible to know, right? That's a, that's a known, a known unknown. All right. Basket
0: number two, things we should know, to understand about counterintelligence that we don't.
1: Hmm. That's a really good question.
0: Because we're going to need a basket number three, too. So yeah, I know. Think hard. The, the
1: range, basket number two is the range of people involved in it. I mean, you think of the FBI within the United States. I mean, certainly there are when you go to every member of not only the US intelligence community whichever what is it 13 agencies but you know things people know like everybody's heard of the CIA and NSA you may not have may may not have heard of the NRO National Reconnaissance Agency or organization the NGA National Geospatial Intelligence Agency and then you get into things like you know the defense intelligence agency every one of the uniformed services have counterintelligence components the coast guard has a counterintelligence component the department of energy has a huge counterintelligence component there are a lot of uh, counterintelligence folks in the government and that's not just the 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 usic and you know part of the while i was still at fbi headquarters so in the mid teens, uh, the us government mandated that every single federal organization have you know an insider threat program and, and think about, even if you're like USDA or Department of Transportation, that you've got an insider threat program to understand what hostile intelligence targeting looks like. So it's big. It's not just don't when you think about what the US. does in a counterintelligence context. it is not just FBI CI, NSA. those are the big heavy hitters. But, you know, if you're talking anything surrounding DOD, you've got a big, big CI presence. If you're talking anything about nuclear weapons or nuclear labs, big, big DOE presence. So there's a lot that goes into it.
0: All right. What's basket number three?
1: I think basket number three is whether or not we are adequately structured as a nation to face the intelligence and counterintelligence environment that we find ourselves in. And there are a couple of aspects of that, I think. One is the change in technology and everything that entails through both opportunities as well as vulnerabilities. And it can be simple things like, you know, the illegals we were talking about earlier. It is much, it was 30 years ago, much easier to create somebody's legend out of home cloth, to create a persona that would withstand somebody like the FBI investigating that to see if you're really who you claim to be than it is now. There's so much of a footprint that every one of us leaves electronically, whether, and I'm not talking about, I mean, certainly that includes social media and things like, you know, credit reporting, but it includes not immediately apparent things like, you know, everybody has when you go to Safeway or when you go to Walgreens, And you want the, you know, $5 off, you know, whatever it is that you're buying and you give your affinity card, all of that gets conglomerated. All of that is available for commercial sale. But what that means is to recreate that. If you're not able to do that, you look really different. And so the ability for people to and you know, the collection of biometric data at ports of entry and exit at various countries. And, you know, if you have your fingerprint scanned or your retina scanned, you can't you you get locked into an identity. You may be able to come up with a false identity, but I can't once I go across a border crossing as Peter Smith with my fingerprint and my eye retina scan, I'm forever linked to that Peter Smith persona. So that makes uh tradecraft particularly complex. And that's just in that one niche subject. It, it goes across to everything from tradecraft and agent communications. And so one is, are we appropriately leveraging that new technology as well as protecting it? China's making huge investments in collecting bulk data. And that we've seen that with the OPM hack, with the Anthem hack, with the you know, any number of things where they're just stealing masses and masses of data, but also investing in AI technology to leverage that, to use it. And are we doing the same thing? And a final sort of component about that, as I think about it, is whether or not congressional oversight is doing what it should. I mean, the you, agencies only go so far when it comes to being self critical. I mean, that's why you have inspectors general, because an outside agency will typically always do a better job of being frank and ask hard questions. Same thing when it comes to the intelligence community broadly. You know, I have no hope that starting with Devin Nunez, the House Intelligence Committee has done a lick of truly effective oversight of the intelligence community, asking hard questions about what is or isn't happening. Everything from, you know, Use of technology to covert action programs to you name it across the board that might be going on in the Senate side, but the House you know wasted four plus years doing non oversight work, and that's one of their key things that they can do. And so I think you have a lot of change with not a lot of hard questions being asked, and uh, you know, and that that comes at a at a cost that isn't immediately apparent.
0: So uh, we need to wrap up, but uh, this is the part where I reach into the chatter box um, and I pull out a completely random question, uh, um, uh, which is, Pete, what is the uh, advice that you wish a 20 year old Pete Strzok could have gotten from your current self? <laughs>
1: Oh, that's a that's a good loaded question. I think it would be do the right thoughtful thing no matter what the outside perception of it is or may be and do that in the context of, you know, I guess at that point I had already taken a... Oath of office do that in the context of your oath of office to the United States. And I say that thinking I think professionally I did a decent job of that.
0: We are going to leave it there. Uh, Pete struck, this is I think the longest interview you have ever done that has <laughs> nothing to do with uh, uh, the um, uh, the events of of 2016. Uh, Thank you for joining us.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a a blast and, and happy to talk about everything else other than that. So it was great.